So tonight, we begin episode three of our Advent series entitled The Christmas Family Tree that is being preached across the bridge movement, as we shared at the very beginning. In 16 churches here in Miami and Brazil combined, and this is always the last service of the bridge movement for the Sunday because it's the last service of the day. And so we're going to be looking into the life of Ruth. Now, I'm going to jump right in because I'm doing something adventurous. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I said that and you maybe thought like, what does he mean by that? And that's this. I'm reading and studying Ruth and we're focusing on the, f- the fourth chapter, the very last chapter of Ruth. And I was like, I need to tell the whole story. So I'm going to tell the whole story of Ruth in one sermon. Are you guys ready? Okay. So you need to focus. We're going to go on a journey through the life of Ruth. This is a book in the Old Testament, and she is one of the mothers of Jesus listed in his lineage. So our story takes place during the early days in the life of the people of God before they were ruled by kings. The people of God were ruled by judges, and this time in the life of the people of God of Israel was tenuous and it was tumultuous. There was all types of fragility among God's people because there was political tension, there was spiritual tension, there was social tension. Sound familiar, friends? Can you relate? And during this season that we look into, when we peer into this moment in history around the life of Ruth, we find that things get more difficult for God's people. Because not only do they struggle with being ruled by judges and all the tension, There's a famine that hits the land. And when the famine hits the land, people have to figure out what to do for their survival. So many people start scattering and looking for other places to go where there's food and where there's provision. And so we look into the life of this one family, and the man of the family, his name is Elimelech. And he has a wife named Naomi. Now, they decide to take their two sons and leave Israel... They're from the tribe of Judah. Their hometown is Bethlehem, but there's no food. There's a famine. There's all this difficulty. So they say, we're going to migrate from Israel to Moab. Now, Moab is another country on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, up in a mountainous region. And the reason that they decide to go there is because there is this fertile plateau in Moab that was famous. It was 25 miles wide and thousands of feet up in the mountains, like this heavenly plateau of food and provision and all types of opportunity. So what happens here is Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, they migrate into Moab. They arrive as immigrants in this strange and foreign country, this place of opportunity and provision where they'll find protection and be able to care for their family. But they know as they go to Moab that it's not going to be easy because Israelites and Moabites do not like each other. There's discrimination, there's racism, there's division. And so the question that you begin to ask as you're reading the story is, how are they going to settle? How is it going to go for them when they arrive in this new land? There may be food, but there's going to be a lot of other obstacles in the way. So they get to Moab and they begin to settle in. And tragedy strikes. As they're there, Elimelech dies. So now Naomi is a widow in a new land 
with all types of discrimination and barriers in front of her, she's vulnerable and she has two sons. You're beginning to ask what's going to happen to her. What's going to happen to her family? What's going to happen to her boys? How are they going to make it in this place that may have food but may bring a lot of other difficulties to them? So as God is often in the business, he takes the ashes of despair and he brings about hope and he does that again. So in this story, as she finds herself a widow with two sons in Moab, we read that her two sons find love. They get married. Now this is a big deal because now she has her two sons married to local Moabite women And that is obviously crossing all types of cultural and spiritual boundaries and barriers. But now it feels like maybe they're going to make it. Maybe they're going to be able to be established here. Maybe that they're going to have a great future in Moab. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this is the story of so many people in our city. The story of immigration. Here in Miami in particular, but all across the country, where there are families that have to leave their homeland Not because they're just wanting to find a new place, because they're forced out. They're looking for a place to survive, a land of opportunity where they can protect and provide for their kids and their future generations. And so people come here to Miami and they come to the country and what do they find? They find opportunity possibly, but they also find barriers. They find discrimination. They may find racism. And they might find difficulty and tragedy that strikes. And oftentimes, as is the story for many, and maybe this is your story and the story of your family, it's the second generation that kind of brings about hope that they're going to make it and find a new home. And it's going to work out as the kids marry or as they find themselves established in a new place. This is what it feels like. Is this happening for Naomi? Is this happening for her sons who are now married? And it goes on great for 10 years. Ten years, things are going well, they're assimilating, they're moving into the culture, and then tragedy strikes again. Both of her sons die. So now, Naomi is left a widow, and both of her sons are dead, and she has two daughters-in-law with her. Now, there's two levels of pain here. The first level of pain is the fact that she just lost her sons. She lost her sons, which you can't, I cannot imagine the grief that she is going through and the despair that she is facing. But the second level of pain is now she has lost, or it feels like she's lost her family name because there are no children. So her husband is dead, and her, her sons are dead, and there's no one to carry on their legacy and their lineage, and her legacy is a storied one. So the levels of pain must be difficult and grave for her. And she's sorting out what is she going to do. And she decides the only answer is for her to go back to Israel. Now she's heard rumors of God providing again for his people in Israel. She's heard that maybe Bethlehem once again is a place of provision. Bethlehem is a city which means the house of bread. So she's thinking, maybe God is providing bread again. Maybe he's restoring his people and the famine is gone. So she goes with her daughters-in-law on her way back to Israel. But as they're heading that direction, she stops and she has a change of heart. She looks at her daughters-in-law and she says to them, you need to stay here. 
Go back to your family. Don't come with me. See, there's a couple things that Naomi is thinking about. One of them is this. She knows that her daughters-in-law are going to have to care for her there because she's a widow with very little opportunity even when she arrives. And she knows that her daughters-in-law are going to have a hard time finding a future husband and having children of their own because of the discrimination and the division between Moabites and Israelites. For in Israel, it was a sin to marry someone of another culture. So she says, you're going to be better off staying here. Go back to your parents. Find other Moabite men. Have families. It's better for you. There's this scene where they're, they're crying together and they're weeping and they're kissing one another. And she's saying, go, go, go. And they're like, no, we want to stay with you. They have this heart to stay, but she keeps encouraging. It's better for you to go back. And one of the daughters-in-law goes back. But then one of them says is clinging to her is holding tight to her. And she says, I'm not going. And her name is Ruth. And here's what Ruth says in Ruth chapter one, verse 16 and 17. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage is pretty famous, this statement by Ruth. If you've been in the church for any period of time, you may have heard this reference where Ruth makes this striking statement to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And we just kind of say, that isn't amazing. That is profound, because Ruth only knows of Israel's culture from Naomi, and she knows it's going to be difficult. She also only knows of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the scriptures, the God that we worship tonight from Naomi and her deceased husband. But she is saying essentially that I am going to abandon my family and my culture and the spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs that I had growing up to worship this God that you have introduced me to. And your people will be my people. I will become in time no longer a Moabite but an Israelite. That's a profound and striking statement. So, Naomi can see in this statement the determination and the commitment from Ruth. And she says, okay, let's go. So they march their way back to Israel on this long journey. They arrive back in Bethlehem. And they arrive at the very beginning of the barley season, the harvest season of barley. Bethlehem has become the house of bread again. God is providing. And Naomi returns, and people are like, Naomi, where have you been? She's like, oh, we've been, I've been a Moabite. And then she talk, begins to tell the story of what's happened to her, and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitterness, because she's had a hard life. She's there with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and it seems like, okay, people are recognizing her. She's sharing her story, but here's the problem. When she's arrived now back into Israel, she has nothing. 
She and Ruth are poor. And so Ruth is thinking about how do we make it here now? How do we survive here now? And her suggestion is, let me go to this landowner that's a family friend. He's also from the tribe of Judah. And let me glean from his fields. Now, gleaning from a field is something that was protected by God's law, and it was a way to support the poor in a community. What it meant was when the landowner had the workers harvesting the crops, gleaning was when the poor could come in after, maybe at the end of the day, and any crops that fell on the ground, they could collect for themselves. So she says, let me go to this landowner that's a family friend, same tribe, and and let me seek permission to glean from his field, to take the crops left over so we can have something to eat and something to sustain us. Now, it's also interesting because you don't have to ask permission to glean in this culture because it's protected by God's law. But Ruth knows something, and that's this. The human heart can be full of greed. And so she knows that though gleaning was protected, that many landowners would keep the poor from their property because they wanted to keep all of the crops for themselves. They didn't want to let the poor in. And I'm sure they justified it too. Like, you're not working here, you don't get to eat. Or I need to collect all these crops because I'm saving for something. And in the future when I have excess, then I'll give to the poor. A lot of justification, but Ruth is willing to do whatever it takes to provide for her and her mother-in-law. So she goes to the landowner, and his name is Boaz. She goes up to Boaz and she says, hey, um, can I glean from the fields? My mother-in-law is Naomi. And he is instantly curious about Ruth. He wants to know her story. He begins to hear about Ruth's story and he says to her, I'm going to protect you. I want you to only glean from my field. You can take extra. I'm going to pour out my generosity upon you. In fact, I'm going to protect you from other people that may want to harm you because you're from another place and you may face discrimination and difficulty. So my people are going to protect you. You can have of my crops and I'm going to give you extra resources like fresh water and other things as well. And then Ruth says to Boaz, why are you being so generous to me, an immigrant? And Boaz's answer is, I've heard your story. I've heard how you've committed and sacrificed for your mother-in-law and seeking to protect her and the way that you've been honoring a God that you came to believe in later in life. And so I want you to know something, Boaz says to Ruth, God is gonna repay you a full reward. She's amazed. It's very evident here in the story that God's kindness is being poured out upon Naomi and Ruth, have they faced it a difficult and bitter life? And yet God is being kind and providing to them. Something happens throughout this process, which is Naomi begins to see Ruth not as a daughter-in-law, but a true daughter. She is now her daughter. She begins to treat her as an Israelite, as a Bethlehemite, as one of her own, and she takes up the responsibility that a mother would have for her sons or her daughters, which is to help them get married. So she says to Naomi, Naomi says to Ruth, hey, listen, I have a plan to help you get married. It's time for you to start your own family. And I know who I want you to try to marry. Can you guess? Boaz. 
So she says, I got this whole plan. She comes up with this whole plan, and Ruth's like, I'm going to follow it. And here's the plan, okay? Stick with me here. Things get wild. It's the end of the barley season. She says, here's what's going to happen. There's a big party tonight. People are going to be dancing and eating and drinking because the harvest is done. We're thanking God for all that he's done. And I know where Boaz is going to be. He's going to leave the party after this long night, and he's going to go down to the threshing floor, which was where they would sift through the crop and they'd prepare the crop. And he's going to sleep there, presumably because he's going to be protecting the very last of his harvest from thieves. So here's what I want you to do, Ruth. She just says, I want you to take a bath and put on perfume. I want you to get done up. I want you to get made right. Okay, this is the big night. You're going to get made up. You're going to get done right. And then you're going to sneak down to the threshing floor. So Ruth is sneaking out of the village in Bethlehem. She gets down to the threshing floor on Boaz's property. And she sees Boaz sleeping there. He's by himself. He's got a blanket on. He's laying in the crops. Probably made a little bed out of the barley. I don't know. He's laying there. He's chilling out. And Ruth is creeping up. And here's what Ruth doesn't do. She doesn't tap him on the shoulder and be like, hey, Boaz, let's talk. You know, Let's have a little conversation. She does something absolutely bizarre to us. Okay? Here's what she does. He's sleeping. She comes up and she takes the blanket off of his feet. So his feet are exposed to the cold night's air. And then she just lays there. You're like, this is weird. Yes, it's weird for us. So she's laying there with Boaz's feet exposed under the blanket. And Boaz, maybe because his feet are ticklish and the wind was blowing or just cold, you know. He wakes up and imagine his surprise. There's a woman at his feet. He wakes up and he says, who is this? And Ruth says... It's Ruth. And then Ruth makes this statement. Boaz, there's, there's some type of custom here that Boaz is familiar with. And Ruth makes this statement. She says, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. I'm going to help translate that for us, okay? She's saying two things that are combining together into one thing. And that is this. She's acknowledging first who Boaz is. Boaz is what is called a kinsman redeemer. She just says redeemer. It could be translated in other translations, kinsman redeemer, which was a title and a responsibility held by many among their families. So what that means is this. Boaz is of the tribe of Judah, and he has a responsibility to be a kinsman redeemer for his family. And that is a male relative who is, holds the responsibility of protecting other relatives when they are in need or danger. So she is making a statement, which is, Boaz, you are the kinsman redeemer for my family. Notice, Ruth has accepted a new identity. She's not a Moabite. She's an Israelite. And she's identifying as from the tribe of Judah. She is Naomi's daughter. She says, you are the kinsman redeemer for me. I am in need, and I'm asking you to take that responsibility. And by coupling that with the first part, which is spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer, she's saying, take the responsibility to marry me. 
Ruth proposes to Boaz. Come on, girl. Let's go. Come on. She's laying there at the feet doing this weird thing. And then she says, Boaz, marry me. It's your responsibility. And Boaz responds by saying, I'm going to marry you. But there's another man. Boom, boom, boom. There's a... I mean, this is like all types of what's going on. She says, here's the deal. See, Boaz is a righteous man, and he's a just man, and he wants to do things the right way. And so Boaz says, I want to marry you. I'm going to, I'm going to take that proposal. I'm going to accept it. However, there's another man in our tribe of our family that is also a kinsman redeemer and has a right to take that proposal ahead of me. So we got to get this sorted out tomorrow in the morning. Talk about the emotions, you know, like Ruth's like, what's going to happen? I'm going to marry some other guy. I don't know what's going on here. So Boaz gets up in the morning. He goes into town, and he assembles the kind of legal council, the elders of the city. And he brings them together, and he finds this man. He says, we got to have a conversation. I'm going to kind of bring you up to speed on something that's happening. And then he says this. There's a piece of property for sale. He's not talking about Ruth. Don't worry, Okay. He has a strategy here because Boaz made a promise to Ruth that he was going to protect her, care for her, and Naomi. So he says, Naomi is selling her property, and you have the first right as a kinsman redeemer to purchase it. Do you want her land? See, what he's trying to reveal is whether or not this man, you're going to see this, whether or not this man cares for Ruth at all whether he loves her and he desires to marry her or whether he just views her as an opportunity to get land. And if he does want to marry Ruth because he does in fact care for her, then Naomi will be provided for because her land will be purchased and she'll have money to live out the rest of her days. So he goes with this route and the man says, hey, yeah, I want the land. I mean, it's a good piece of property. I want to buy it. He's like, okay, great. Now he's going to push all the chips in the middle. Naomi is selling her inheritance, which is not just her land. She's also giving an offer for you to marry her daughter. So if you want to, as the kinsman redeemer, protect and care for the needs of this family, which is your responsibility and right to choose, you not only claim the land, but you will also marry Ruth. Now, when he describes Ruth, he describes Ruth like this. He says, Ruth is a Moabite. She's an immigrant from Moab, and she's a widow. Her husband is deceased, and she's looking to get married so she can continue on the lineage and the name of her deceased husband. Why does he do that? You see, Boaz puts forward to this man everything that was a barrier for Ruth. Everything she was discriminated for, she was judged for, everything that she was overlooked for, the things that made her an outcast, that she's an immigrant from Moab, that she's a widow, that she desires to carry on the family name of Elimelech and Naomi and her husband who's deceased. So she puts, he puts all of this there before this man and says, do you want to marry Ruth? This is who she is. Do you know what this man's response is? Uh, I don't know. I, I actually don't think I need the property. 
And um, you're next up, right, Boaz? So if you want to marry Ruth, and if you, like, it's all for you. And Boaz marries Ruth. And he marries Ruth because he loves Ruth, and he knows her story, and he sees her as Naomi's true daughter, and he is willing and desirous to include her in his family. You see, he does not discriminate against her. He does not judge her. He wants to continue on the family name. He wants to marry this outstanding woman. And when they get married, things change after this proclamation. There's actually this this prophetic prayer and blessing that is cast over Boaz and Ruth. Here's what it says in Ruth chapter four, verse 11 and 12. Listen to this. Listen how things have changed for Ruth. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said... We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and to be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This prophetic blessing that is cast over Ruth and Boaz goes like this. This woman, Ruth, we are praying and blessing her to be in the lineage that has been celebrated among God's people. Would she be like Rachel and Leah? Would she be like Tamar, who gave birth to Perez from Judah? Would she give offspring that would be a part of this storied legacy that was promised to Abraham? For this lineage and this union between Ruth and Boaz is continuing the promise that God made to Abraham, which was to Jacob, Isaac, and then to Jacob, and going all the way from Judah now to Boaz and Ruth. Would God continue and bless you? Ruth is now, who was one time an outsider, has been made an insider and is receiving this blessing And from Boaz and Ruth, they will have children. The first child that they have, his name will be called Worshipper. For they together are worshiping the God who was kind and good to them. And throughout the lineage, from the line of Boaz and Ruth will come the answer in church always, Jesus. He comes from this lineage. And here's what's so important for us to see. Jesus who comes from this lineage of Ruth and Boaz, is the better kinsman redeemer. Boaz is fantastic. He is a man of honor, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he loves Ruth, and he does not discriminate against Ruth. He does not judge Ruth. He treats her as an Israelite, as a Bethlehemite. He takes her from an outsider to be an insider, He protects her and upholds his word for her. He's a fantastic kinsman redeemer. But Jesus is better. And Jesus is the kinsman redeemer for you as well. You see, Jesus, when he was born on Christmas Day, which we will celebrate, Jesus was born, it says, to save. And he was born to redeem He was born to take outsiders, insiders. He was born to save and to redeem, as a kinsman redeemer, people that are like Ruth, which is us. 
We were foreigners to God, and yet God brings us into his family. We were spiritual outcasts because of our sin, and yet we are called the bride of Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. He includes us in his family. Though there are barriers and obstacles, and Jesus destroys those and tears them down, he's the better kinsman redeemer. I want to say this in closing. What you and me need more than anything is not another spiritual insight. What you need is to be able to trust what you already know. Many times we come to church or we go to Bible studies or we go on the YouVersion app to do our devotionals and what we're looking for is a spiritual insight. We're facing barriers and discrimination and difficulty and judgments and labels in our life and we're looking for a spiritual insight to help us to get us closer to God, to trust God's word, to do certain things. You don't need any more spiritual insights. You need to trust what you already know. I want you to think about this. How is it that many of us can come here every Sunday and hear about God's love for us, that he forgives you and he loves you and you're included in his family and you're a son and a daughter And you believe it in your mind, but your heart kind of rolls its eyes a little bit. Like, I don't know. I don't know about that. How is it that you can sing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, what? Love of God. A thousand times. So many times you don't want to hear the song again. You can sing it. You can declare it. You can believe it. But then right after the song, you feel like you need to perform for God. Why is it that we can hear and believe on God's grace that we are forgiven and we are made right in him. But then just a little bit later, we feel like God's upset with us, especially when we fall into the same sin patterns that we have before. Why is it that you can come to the table of communion every single week and taste of the broken body and shed blood of Christ represented here? but then not feel welcomed at Jesus' table? Why can you find rest and belonging among God's people and with God on Sundays, but then Monday feel like you need to work hard anxiously for the love of others? I think it's because sometimes we fall into believing that we need more spiritual insights instead of just trusting what we already know. I heard this from a pastor named Tyler Staten, and he said this. There's an important difference we need to understand between belief and knowledge. For us as Western thinkers, our 2022, almost 2023 mind, when we hear the difference between belief and knowledge, here's how we think. We think that belief is a core issue. We believe deep in our heart. It's a core aspect of who we are. And knowledge is our intellect. It's of our mind. But the ancient Hebrew and the people of God during the time of Ruth and Boaz understood things very, very differently. Here's how they understood it. Knowledge is the Hebrew word yada. And knowledge is this, relational and experiential knowing. Relational and experiential knowing. Belief for the ancient Hebrew people, for the people of God, was theory without knowledge. It's actually the exact opposite. Knowledge is something you know because you've experienced it, because you have a relationship to it, while belief is something that is in your mind that you haven't yet experienced. So as an example, 
I would say all of us in the room believe that putting your hand on a hot stove is a bad idea. But some of us know it's a bad idea because we've done it. See, some of us believe, but we've never experienced. But some of us have experienced, so we really know. That's why in the Bible, the word know is a euphemism for sex. It's intimate. It's deep. It's relational. It's experiential. When it says that Adam knew Eve, it doesn't mean he asked her 20 questions about her favorite things. It's deep, relational, experiential knowledge. If I were to ask some of you about a friend or maybe make it more particular about a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a romantic partner, and I were to say this, how do you know that your partner loves you, that your spouse loves you, that your boyfriend loves you, that your girlfriend loves you? How do you know? Here's how you would not respond, I would imagine. I hope not. Because we took vows. Those are important, but that's not how you know your spouse loves you. Or you wouldn't say, well, because they said, do you want to go out with me? Or I don't, what do people say now? I mean, what do you say? Like, you want to be my boyfriend or you're my girl? I don't know what do you say. That feels weird, you know? Like, how does it happen? You say like, hey, swipe right? I don't know. Like, if that's the right way or the wrong way, I don't know. You wouldn't go back to that. Here's how you would know that the person that you love and loves you in return, in fact, really loves you. You would say, well, because we've cried together. We've had deep, intimate conversations together. We've laughed together. We've made memories. In my weakest moments, they were there to support me. They were celebrating my success. They were challenging me to grow. They are still with me despite all the difficulties that we've been through. That's how I know they love me. It's not just because you believe that you said some words. It's because you've experienced it, because you know it. So I'm telling you this is because what you and me need more than anything is not more spiritual insights. We need to trust what we already know. Jesus says this really strange and cryptic statement in John chapter 2 that you may just kind of move right past, but it highlights this. Here's what he says in John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. It says this. It says what this is about Jesus. It says, many believed in his name, that's Jesus, when they saw the signs that he was doing. So people are seeing Jesus do some amazing things, some miracles, and they believed in his name because of what they saw. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Now, in the Greek, the word believed is the word pestuo. Can you say pestuo? Pestuo. Here we go. And the word entrust is the Greek word pestuo. Do you notice something? Many believed pestuo in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not believe pestuo himself to them. What is he saying? What is, this is like kind of cryptic. Jesus is saying... Or it's being said about what Jesus is feeling and believing is that there are people that know in their mind, they believe Jesus because they've seen some signs and wonders, but they don't really know him. They believe it's theory. It hasn't been experienced. There's no relationship. And because of that, Jesus hasn't believed himself to them. He has not entrusted himself to them. He doesn't know them. See, it's highlighting that you can believe in Jesus and you can be intellectually curious about Jesus but not really know him. 
You can believe but not know. And let me say this too for some of us in the room. You can believe and come to know Jesus and be entrusted to Jesus but revert back to believing because you disconnect from the relationship with him. And so you operate as if you just need more spiritual insights. You just need more intellectual knowledge. You just need to know more things about God and know more things about Jesus and do more things. But what you really need is to trust what you already know. You need to trust in the relationship that has been provided for you. That Jesus who was born on Christmas Day was co- has come to redeem as the better kinsman redeemer. He invites you to be a part of his family. He overlooks your labels and your judgments. He does not discriminate against you. In fact, he died for you and was buried and rose so that you might find yourself in him. Right after this cryptic statement, you read a very famous story in John chapter 3 about Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he knows things about Jesus in his mind. He believes things in his mind, but he doesn't really know him yet. And then Jesus says a lot of things, but he makes the most famous statement in all of the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's not belief in the mind, friends. It's whoever knows him. It's been entrusted to him. You see, this changes Nicodemus. This understanding that it's not about what he knows in his mind, but it's about his heart. Because you don't read about Nicodemus again until when Jesus is crucified and he's buried. And who is there preparing and honoring the body of Jesus? Nicodemus. Because he went from knowing in his mind to believing in his heart, from knowing in his heart, experiential and relational. And I tell you that because Jesus, friends, he is the better kinsman redeemer. And he is not inviting you to come sit at his feet until he notices you. He's not. He's not inviting you to to do all these religious things and perform from him. He's like, oh, hey, who's this? You're like, hey, it's me. I've been here. I'm trying to be here. He's pursuing you. He is the kinsman redeemer that pursues his bride, who runs after his bride, who chases the lost sheep and brings them back, who looks at the outsider and says, you can be an insider with me. I don't discriminate. I don't judge. In fact, I have died for your discrimination and your judgments and labels so that you can find a new identity in me. You are now a citizen of heaven. I wrote this, and I want you to receive this, friends. This is my encouragement to you. Here's what it said. Here's what I wrote. Jesus is the better kinsman redeemer who pursues you. He covers you with the wings of the cross. He pierced his feet to reveal his invitation for you to be entrusted to him. He gives you a new homeland, the citizen of heaven. He sees all the discrimination you have faced, the judgments cast upon you, and he loves you all the more. And he protects you and your future against anyone who may believe themselves to have a claim on you. He is the better kinsman redeemer. And because he was born on Christmas day to redeem, which he accomplished on the cross and through his burial and resurrection, he has built you into the Christmas family tree. You are a part of God's family by faith in knowing him. And my prayer is that you would not only believe that, but you would know that, experience that, that relationship. You don't need more spiritual insights, friends. You need to trust what you already know.
Amen? Will you pray with me? God, I just pray that prayer that we would be people that trust what we already know. I confess, God, that for myself, and I'm sure for many in this room, it can be easy to revert back to performing for you, to believing that we need to do certain things to really maintain your love, or for you to recognize us as if we're sitting at your feet and you don't know that we're there. Jesus, you pursue us. You invite us to bow before your feet just out of gratitude and worship because we've already been included, we've already been accepted, we've already been loved. And God, I pray that we would allow that to resonate deeply, that as we take from your table and as we close in song, that we would experience now the truth of your gospel, the good news of salvation, that we are redeemed by you, Jesus, the better kinsman redeemer. You have made us an outsider, an insider, part of the family of God. We are no longer a foreigner to you, God. We are a friend. Would we hold fast to that? Would we allow that to sift deep into our heart? Would we know it? Really know it? God, we thank you for the testimony and the story of men and women like Boaz and Ruth and so many others. But most of all, we thank you, Jesus, for you. For you are what this season is about. Would we wait on you? Would we trust you? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, what an opportunity now as we do.